It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. going on everyone welcome back to mic'd up on ohm radio i'm your host mika gadsden and i am excited for you to hear today's show this is from the mic'd up vault <laughs> so uh around yeah it was on march 16th i sat down and i reached out to a phenomenal local presence dr june murray um, i wanted to reach out to an african-american mental health professional someone with credentials and with tons of experience to help us. I wanted to reach out to just talk to her about how we could all cope with COVID-19 and, and to help us, you know, just get through these tough times. And this conversation started off one way, but what I found was it just relaxed into this really, really rich conversation with someone who is just a wealth of knowledge and and insight. And it felt like I was speaking to a a long lost family member. So I hope you get to know something new about Dr. June Murray. And I hope also you're inspired to listen to some of our best resources here in Charleston. So take a listen and I hope you enjoy it. uh, Dr. June Murray, thank you so much for joining me on Mic'd Up. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me regarding this current pandemic. You're very welcome, and I appreciate your interest in what I might have to say. Absolutely. Um, For those who are unfamiliar with you, um, I know you are a member of KGEM, and you're also pretty well connected throughout Charleston. But for those who may not know who you are, would you mind just sharing with folks who you are and and what you do? Certainly, I'd be happy to. Um, You mentioned KGEM. That is... uh, those are the initials, and the, or I suppose you could say nickname for the Charleston Area Justice Ministry. And I have been an active volunteer with them for four years. And uh, our goals are to um, seek justice in this uh, greater Charleston area. And so we can talk about that some more later on and um, maybe go over some of our key issues. But I'm originally from New Haven, Connecticut, and I um, moved from Boston to New York City, and um, I went back to college after uh, being out of school for quite some time and did my undergraduate degree at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury on Long Island and majored in psychology and African-American studies and women's studies. And then I went to Columbia University and got my master's in clinical social work at um, Columbia University, New York City, Upper Manhattan. Oh, wait. And from there, I I moved. Can I just stop you for a moment in awe? Sure. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Anytime I speak to a black woman who's a doctor, I'm already like just so enthused. But you went to an Ivy League institution, and and that's just so awe-inspiring. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. But I grew up in New Haven, and you mentioned Ivy League, so then I guess you know that Yale University is in New Haven. Yes, right. And so my playground was Yale University. So it was expected of uh, my friends and and of me that we would pursue uh, higher education and, you know, try to do the best we could 
where we could. And so I left New York and went to the University of California, first at Santa Cruz and did another master's in psychology. And then I uh, transferred up to UC Berkeley, and that's where I did my doctorate in psychology and ethnic studies, or what some people call multicultural studies. Um, but uh, once I got my uh, MSW from Columbia, I started working as a clinical psychotherapist. And um, some wise person said to me, you should get your MSW first because the rest of your graduate education is going to cost a lot of money and you're not going to be getting, you know, that much money from the school. So you're going to need to work. And I had by then two, uh, my two children were in college and then grad school at the same time I was. So um, I was glad that I followed that advice. I listened to somebody who knew something uh, besides my own counsel. And uh, that is exactly what happened. I started doing therapy in Santa Cruz. I established a satellite office in an integrated neighborhood there because I found out that people of color in Santa Cruz, California were not being provided mental health services by the agencies that were established there. And so I got a church to let me have an office in this particular community. And I literally walked around the community and handed out flyers and introduced myself so that people would begin to realize that finally there was a black therapist in town. While I was in my classes for my uh, next master's and then also I continued practicing psychotherapy when I moved up to Berkeley at the um, Oakland Children's Hospital. I worked in the unit for uh, abused children while I was working on my doctorate. So when I finished my PhD, I um, moved to North Carolina. I was living in Durham, North Carolina. I was teaching at North Carolina State University in the social work department, but also continued doing psychotherapy. So. Throughout my career, I've always, it's been a dual career. I've always studied uh, psychology, learned as much as I could about social work, gerontology, aging, all of those wonderful topics, but at the same time was practicing therapy. You know, you know what, I, what I was thinking as you were t telling me, you know, how you navigated your studies as a mother, um, you know, as a single mom, it sounds, at, you know, at, at points during that time. And um, that, I guess that operational or that practical experience you had working while also learning more, you know, and investing more mm -hmm. in your scholarship must have given you a unique perspective on on folks and, and what, what they needed. Did you, um, at that time when you were, um, when you made your way to North Carolina, had you figured out what type of um, health care you wanted to focus on? I guess what, I don't even know the the, um, the verbiage, but what area of study or area of expertise did you, did you land on? Yes, actually that started when I was at Columbia University. And remember too, I was an older returning student. And so I had already had a great deal of experience in life. I was always a um, civil rights activist starting, I mean, from when I was nine years old in New Haven. So um, 
when I was at Columbia, not only did I know that I wanted to major in clinical social work, which is mental health, but that I also wanted to uh, learn to do family therapy. And lucky for me, when I was at Columbia, and that was in 19, between 1980 and 82, very, very, very few students uh, requested to study family therapies. There were only a few faculty members who knew anything about uh, practicing family therapy or the scholarship behind it. So I was very lucky in how they placed me for my internships and with whom. And uh, so I was one of the, I mean, really, I think there were only about four of us that were doing family therapy at that time. So from there, uh, not only did I want to make sure I knew about family therapy, I didn't think Columbia was going to emphasize black family, but that was my goal. So once I graduated and moved to uh, Santa Cruz, you heard me say that I established an office in an integrated neighborhood. I was working with black uh, clients as well as Hispanic and some Asians, but mostly Hispanic and, and African-American uh, clients and their, you know, the family, uh, family approach. I did, too, some individual work and work with children. And the funny thing, you know, you, you remind me of it by your question. As I aged, so did my clients. <laughs> so when my last academic position was at Morgan State University in Baltimore, and at that point I was chair of the gerontology program, which is the study of aging across life. It's not geriatrics. It's all that happens to us in life. And uh, it was the new program at Morgan. And so lucky for me, I had a lot of other, uh, a lot of students that were returning. Those are my favorite students because they come to college uh, and then grad school with a goal to complete, to work, to settle down, to really focus and pay attention. So they were always in class, always did their homework, did well on their their papers and their exams. Yeah, I love my older returning students. But um, yeah. yes, I, I went to uh, Durham actually to do the research for my PhD dissertation. Uh, another lucky thing for me was John Hope Franklin was still alive, the very famous black historian. And he was still teaching at Duke University. And so when I knew he was there, I went, I found a way to meet him. And um, he became my unofficial member of my dissertation committee <laughs> and guided me with my research because wow. it was black history. I was, I, was, I was looking at the effects of a changing economy on black families across four generations oh, wow. in Durham. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, yeah, that what? Was... so, so that, that actually makes me think about, um, you know, current state of affairs right now, how this global pandemic has turned into a financial crisis. And I, I'm only imagining how black families and, and, you know, other marginalized families are going to be impacted by this. Um, so when did you actually, um, end up in, in South Carolina or was that much later? Um, let's see. I stayed in Durham from, uh, let's see, 88 until 97. I moved to Atlanta for two years because my daughter and son-in-law had my first and only grandchild, and they asked me to come to be part of the family unit there. Stayed two years, went back to North Carolina, taught. I was chair of the social work department at A&T, 
stayed there three years. I told him I was only going to stay three years because I had had enough in North Carolina, quite frankly. Then I got recruited up to Morgan State in Baltimore, stayed there seven years. Then I was a part of a wonderful research uh, think tank, and we were looking doing research on uh, suicide prevention techniques and um, across the country. And so I, a former student of mine, an older student, had moved to Las Vegas, and he decided when the economy went south in 2008, if I would please come and live in Vegas and help him through his MSW program because he is um, he has a pretty severe case of ADD. And so first I told him, uh, just call me. <laughs> I didn't want to live in Vegas. But he talked me into it. I went, and I ended up staying there four years. And then it was just time for me to get out of the desert. And I wanted to live near a seaside community again. Mm. And my children were complaining about me being so far away. And so I chose Charleston um, because there's a chapter of my sorority here. And I wanted to be near them. And what sorority? What one would you guess? Oh, don't put me on the spot now. <laughs> hey, you met me. What do you think? I'm trying to remember. Okay, this is bad. I'm going to be back. Oh, if it's that. I know you won't say anything that has anything to do with red. Uh, no. AK, you uh-huh. an AKA? <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> okay. Great no wait, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I got you. You know what? Yes, you know, we've got, we've got some great ones here. Septima Clark is one. And there's a whole yes. host great aka mm-hmm. okay that's so right that's right Charleston. angela burke for one i mean you nobody better than angela burke i'm telling you, you and go. and yeah you know there's so many karen harrison absolutely yeah Bertel middleton yes it, it's, it's that type of um like that type of knowledge and that type of um legacy that you are a part of that i think is so it's so fascinating to me i could I could really listen to you just rattle off where you've been and, and where your studies have take, taken you. And then to land in Charleston, I myself, my dad is from this area, from Wadmala, mm-hmm. um, but I was mm-hmm. born and raised in New Jersey. And it's just, it is fascinating when I've asked Black folks how they ended up here if they weren't like born and raised here. And so your your journey is 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 incredible. And so yeah, you, you chose Charleston for one of the reasons why I chose it, you know, I wanted to be by water. Um uh-huh. it's just so beautiful. Um let me ask you this, did you study or did you um did you practice medicine here or is that the right term to use in terms of No, it's it's uh practice uh psychotherapy right. and yes I do did and do. But there's one more thing that I wanted to mention when you said my journey um while I was at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, the uh the black faculty there were very busy working hard to establish an an academic and cultural exchange program with the University of Ghana, West Africa. And um, one of the requirements for any faculty is that you have to be on a committee. When I heard about that committee, that's the committee I got on. And so fortunately for me, I got a chance to go to Ghana three summers to teach students there as well as bring students from America, some from NCSW, I'm sorry, NCSU, but also any university. And that exchange program is still in existence. 
And so faculty and students and sometimes community activists would go as a group, usually towards the end of June through August and uh, live either on campus or with military families or some uh, of us lived in a small Ghanaian owned hotel. And um, we studied the culture and um, we learned so much and the my social work students had a chance to provide social work service there in Ghana, in Accra, the capital. So Yes, my I have had a, a fabulous journey and have been so many places, always, always learning, 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 and it's been wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I encourage everyone to to remain lifelong learners and and to definitely reach beyond, you know, the the brick and mortar classrooms and mm-hmm. definitely travel is is traveling is your biggest classroom. The globe is is a great way to really expose yourself to different things. Um, so exactly. thank you, thank you for um, sharing with me that piece because I think that is important, um, and again, adds that it adds that perspective. So um, I I did want to ask you about you know practicing psychotherapy and mm-hmm. um, you said yeah. you um, you use the present tense. Um, yes. So you're still you're still seeing patients, and I just wanted to know um, how would you characterize your time of of practicing psychotherapy here in Charleston. How would I characterize it? I would say that it's been extremely difficult because unfortunately, we live in a state that pays very little attention and hardly any financial support for mental health services, very little. And um, that really sort of trickles down to the way people think about whether or not they might benefit from having a a neutral, objective person to sit down and talk to about everyday problems that they may be experiencing, anxiety, depression, um, sometimes fear. Uh, Lots of times people are afraid to advance. Maybe they have a, a opportunity for a promotion on their job and they're afraid to do it. They worry, do they have the skills? Will they fail? So fear of failure often holds people back. But the idea of sitting down with someone who has skill, who can help them look at the power within themselves and the journey they've already been on successfully and how they can move forward is just uh, they, they feel like, oh, no, I have to do it all by myself and I can't let anybody know that maybe I might need someone. So it's been very frustrating here more than any other place I've lived in the United States. Yeah, I, I if you don't, but, um, if you don't mind me offering, um, and I again, um, you know, um, I think that 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 um, what do you call that that observation you made is something that I've heard across so many different professions from Black women. My myself, I came now. I had a different path, of course, um, but I worked in industries where I commanded a a, a, de- a great salary, a competitive salary. And I mean, I couldn't sniff anything close to that coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That frustration is is real for a lot of very capable Black women, with mm-hmm. you know, with your um, similar um, education and experience. Go and I interrupted you. You can continue your thought. I'm sorry about that. Well, well, and you know, some of it is cultural. Some of it is being uh, underexposed to what mental health services might be. Um, there's this. Uh, kind of orientation towards clickishness. So 
you know, like on the one hand, it's a wonderful thing to see the family compounds around Mount Pleasant, parts of, uh, outside of, you know, the unincorporated areas around Mount Pleasant, here on James Island where I live, John Island, uh, and then all over West Ashley, North Charleston. You find these compounds of family. And in a way that's supportive and long time ago was very supportive how people survived. But today it's crippling because nobody is uh, willing to say there's a problem here and I need to get some help outside of this compound. Mm -hmm. That's one problem. Another problem is I think that there are people who feel threatened by folks like me and maybe like you who've come from somewhere else and we have skills and we're so eager to offer them not to come and say, I know more than you do, I'm better than you, but listen, I've been here and there, I've learned this and I've learned that, let me help, let's build this community. That is the one reason why I love being a part of Cajun so much because a lot of the other volunteers are not from here. They, like myself and like you, came here. We saw what we saw, and we said, this is not going to work. We need to start seeking some justice. And we've plus... Yeah, no, I didn't, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, uh, I think, too, what it is to me, I kind of, I arrived at this, and maybe, I don't know if it's an adequate... um, I don't know if it's an adequate uh, metaphor, but, you know, like you said, we had to be... Um, isolated black folk here. I'm gonna say we because uh, um, I'm a Gullah Geechee descendant. Um, mm-hmm. We had to be isolated. We or we had the isolation and benefited from the isolation of being Sea Island folk. And I think right. that that protective thing that came with that it it translated now into like it 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 jumped from a physical isolation to a quite literal cultural isolation. To where, right. and, and this is not, this is not, a, this is not um, bashing anyone, but if I've heard it once, I've probably heard it a thousand times, especially mm-hmm. since moving here, you know, um, the, the frustration I might have is that this is my culture too. I'm just yeah. one, I'm a different iteration of it. You are an African-American woman. You identify as black. You, this is a part of you as well in some way, shape mm-hmm. or form. And mm-hmm. we, have, we have to embrace that, hey, this thing called this thing called white supremacy and, and in the enslavement of Africans, it, it dispersed all of us. And that's right. A lot of us are just returning home. And my gullah is I'm, I'm the daughter of Jim Crow refugees. I always will say that. And mm-hmm. this is my gullah. This is how I this yeah. is how it looks in me. And I, yeah. I'm just coming home. I'm just coming home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and it actually connects directly to what you mentioned a few minutes ago about the financial repercussions on people of color this virus is causing, not just the virus itself, but how the government, especially the federal government, has been reacting to it. What I worry so much about On the one hand, a lot of people here are not paying attention. They're not taking it seriously. The financial situation is very, very serious for anybody, anybody with a lower income without a lot of resources. It doesn't take long if you're out of work one month, two months, and it could be more than that, before you have no resources, none. So, yeah, I am very concerned about that. Yeah. So, so, 
Yeah. So, um, and I, oh man, I, I thank you so much for bringing that up in terms of, um, I am very, very, and, and you know this when you work with Kajum, uh, Kajum worked with the Avery Institute in terms of commissioning a study, um, that mm-hmm. talked about yes. that, you know, uncovered what we already knew, confirmed what we already knew in terms of, um, you know, some, uh, uh, disparities, um, along education and whatnot. And I know Kajum is pushing currently for a study of the North Charleston police. Am I, am I correct in that? Well, we, yes. Um, what not so much a study, an audit of the uh, North audit, Charleston Police right, Department. Right, right. And uh, we've been pushing on that for three years. And we also pushed on it for the city of Charleston, which we finally succeeded in getting. And so reports about uh, what that auditing team, CNA, found out. And then, thank goodness, we have a new police chief, Mr. Reynolds, who is doing a wonderful job. He's very cooperative with Cajun and any other civil rights organization in this area. And he is looking, and he's new here, so it's not like anybody could blame him for some of the mess that goes on in the police department. But we can credit him because he's finding it and he's getting rid of it. And so we're seeing some changes, and that's great. But North Charleston, that mayor and his city council, they're not. Uh, trying to have that audit they're doing everything in their power to stop it yeah and I and, so, I, and like you were saying the coronavirus and the, the the governmental response could quite easily lead to an, an over militarization of police where we know right. and, and and I appreciate you giving um Reynolds his due I I will admit I'm very um well it's my job to be an irritant of of Reynolds and to continue to press <laughs> him on more and doing even better but I have seen him be very responsive to not just Cajun but other black stakeholders in the community. But when it comes to North Charleston, I'm extraordinarily um, concerned about how the, um, the, yeah, the coronavirus could lead to uh, the militarization of a police force that's already problematic. I understand that they do have black leadership, um, but that's just the head. There's so much going on that predates you know, the current chief there in North Mm -hmm. Charleston. And like you said, they have a mayor that has been in place for a quarter of a century. So over a quarter of a century and just one reelection, you know, so, so um, I'm glad to hear that uh, Cajun is, and folks like yourself are investing in that. I I wanted to take the conversation back a little bit in terms of um, some other things. Um, I wanted to ask your professional opinion outside of perhaps how the government might, um, you know, take advantage of this, uh, this outbreak, this pandemic. Um, how do you, how do you see this impacting black folk in terms of those who need access or who might need access to mental health care? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I have found very, very, very few mental health practitioners in this community that I feel comfortable making a referral to. Now, that's a big statement right there. Uh, I did learn when I first got here, which was 2013, that there used to be quite a few black and white, very, very talented Uh, mental health practitioners, whether they were psychiatrists, psychologists, clinical social workers, or sometimes people with masters in counseling. They were doing a good job. They weren't only doing research projects like what you find at MUSC. Mm 
they had a broad range of services uh, in their practice that they could offer members of the community. But when the economy uh, went south, many of them left. I found that out when I was looking for a job and was sending out my resume to uh, those folks I found online or even in the phone book, and the letters came back because the people had closed their office and moved away. So uh, then you mentioned, too, that uh, with salary, um, you don't make very much money here. So unless you have like retirement income to supplement whatever you might earn around town, um, it's very difficult to make a living here in the mental health uh, field. So, um, so anyway, some of the ministers around here, this is the Bible Belt, right? So some of them have had some appropriate training in counseling and may be doing a good job. I don't know for a fact, but I know that they're offering it. Um, so that's one source that, uh, that the members of the community could seek. But overall, first they have to get it in their minds. This virus is serious. They need to take it seriously. They need to become as informed as possible. They need to understand what social distancing means. It's different than quarantine. Right now we have the opportunity to voluntarily stay home before the military or the local police is called out in force to make you go home or make you go somewhere. So people need to learn, pay attention, follow basic instructions. Don't just rely on hand sanitizer. Use hot water and antibacterial soap often throughout the day. Don't get up in anybody's face. Basically stay home. Right. And because uh, whether you're a person of color or not, this is a community that is as poorly prepared as most places in the United States, maybe worse. It's so a poor state. Yeah, it's a poor state. Um, unfortunately, we do. And, and I tweeted this, you know, um, you know, when the city of Charleston and, and I know that in some ways the, the mayor of Charleston's hands is, uh, were tied with the cruise ships, but there had to be an option to get those folks who um, today we even had another cruise ship disembark, um, passengers disembark. So another 3000 passengers came without any screening on board of the, the cruise ship. You know, um, I, I see these things happening and that have undoubtedly have ramifications that would impact folk here. And like right. you, you just mentioned, this is a poor state. So a lot of folks who keep this bustling tourism industry um, going, they're hourly workers who can't afford to miss work. And I know they're working on, you know, certain remedies and, and perhaps some sort of stimulus package that would include some sort of immediate financial help. But um, I can only imagine the dilemma that folks um, are, are, are navigating, folks who cannot afford to stay home that might work while they're sick. And, um, you know, it might lead to even worse outcomes for Black folk who already don't have the uh, access to either mental health care or physical health care here in Charleston. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, do you um, do you hear anyone maybe among your peers or just within your immediate community lamenting about um, or feeling worried or, or overburdened by, um, you know, this impending, you know, because it's about to get even more real, uh, for lack of a better phrase. Do you hear anyone talking about or worrying about how they're going to cope with this um, 
pandemic. You know, people are not planning. They're not. And but to be fair, Tamika, I have to say, America has never seen anything like this before. We had the Ebola. Uh, scare, but it really didn't touch too much of us. We had HIV and AIDS, but again, people even distanced themselves from that. I remember people saying, oh, no, 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 that's a white man, a gay man thing. It's not a, really? Okay. So finally they learned that wasn't true. Right, right. But something like this, the closest thing to it is World War II, not the Vietnam War, not the Korean War, but World War II when we were suddenly bombed in Pearl Harbor and then there was rationing and the men all disappeared. They went off into the, into the service and people had to figure out they had victory gardens and things like that. That is the closest thing to what we're facing now that Americans have ever faced. Well, those Americans are mostly passed on by now. You know, I mean, I was born in 1943 yeah. and I remember hearing stories when I was a baby. Yeah. But you, your generation, your probably even your parents, nobody has experienced this. They can't even begin to wrap their minds around it. So first, we haven't seen the number of cases that will develop here. We haven't seen the number of deaths that will occur here. And we haven't seen the people beginning to plan. But yeah, I think that's why I love having this show is that I get to reach people. And um, I think it's important to hear voices like yours who have, again, have the experience, have seen things, um, who, who have made friendships. You know, you said you had, you know, someone, you know, that was your unofficial, uh, was it mentor of your doctoral studies or, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know. You John had, Hope Franklin. John Hope Franklin. I'm so sorry. That's yeah. a name. That's a, a very prestigious name. And so you've, you've benefited from, from these conversations. And I do think even mm -hmm. with my, my parents are very, now my dad has some years on you. My dad was born 1939. And oh, uh, look at that. And, and How so, about that? <laughs> so with him, it's really hard for him to just, um, I, you know, to really just relinquish control. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had a little health scare this week, but he passed uh -oh. the screening. He's, he's okay. It's just a chest cold, they say, but you know, 80 years old. And um, it's, yeah. it's, I think there's something mentally not deficient, but something mentally he's unable to reconcile like, Hey, this could happen to me. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you're mentioning that about your dad. Uh, just before uh, this call with you, I was talking to a good friend out in California, a writer, another writer. And uh, she, she said that, um, she was listening to some podcast and they were talking, this was last week and they were talking about this uh, virus and the pandemic. And they were referring to uh, that older people tend to be a little bit more susceptible to it. And uh, if, especially if they have uh, an impaired immune system and she was listening, listening, and then all of a sudden she realized she was in that category and she said, Oh, wait a minute. That's me. <laughs> That's me they're talking about. And I had to laugh. And I said, yeah, I, I feel the same way. Only I'm paying attention. I'm taking right. it seriously. You know, I don't think that I, I mean, I know I've done a lot, been a lot, all of that. But I could get this virus. It is equal opportunity virus. And I'm not, that virus is going to have to climb up the stairs and sneak through the window in order to get me because I'm keeping my happy self right here in my well, I'm little that's apartment. Why, that's why I'm glad I can do these these interviews remotely um, to keep everybody mm -hmm. safe. Um, let me ask you this. Yeah. Is there anything you would advise people to prepare? How how would you advise folks to prepare mentally? Like, what, what do you suggest? 
Well, I, I suggest, like I have been saying, first of all, become informed. Find out what we're talking about. And if anybody uses terminology you're not familiar with, look it up in a dictionary or online. Be informed. Pay attention. Look at the cable stations if you can. Uh, if you don't have a cable on your, you know, in your home, then get a radio. Listen to it in the car. NPR will give you valid information. So be informed and take it seriously. And then follow the basic precautions about washing your hands, not getting close to other people, staying out of large groups. Stay home, basically. Then when you're going to be at home, then you have to start thinking about, what if I do get it? What's the plan? Do I have small children or am I taking care of any elderly family members? What will happen if I'm not here, if I have to go to the hospital or if I die? Who's going to fill my role? Make plans. Talk to your family. Who will do what? And then what happens? Buy supplies. Hand, uh, hand sanitizer is okay, but you also want to get those uh, like Clorox or Lysol wipes. Wipe everything in your house, your phone, your laptop, your computer, your television, the remote, the hand, the doorknobs on all of the doors in your house. And clean, clean, clean as much as you possibly can. And yes, think about what to do with your time. Do you want to write a book? Do you like to read? Are there games you like to play? Maybe get out some old-fashioned board games. Everybody could be on their phone doing games, but you could also play together, share, talk, talk about your feelings, express your anxiety. And then you want to look at, I mean, I don't know if you have accounts, retirement accounts, what's going on with them. Find out what's happening so you can plan. Uh, if you get a chance to go to the bank and get some cash, you might need cash. You might need to have some money. Uh, I heard someone say last week, have gas in your car. Well, that's conflicting with stay home. But maybe there'll come a time when we have to evacuate. We don't know that yet. Because as I said before, this is something brand new to most Americans. So you want to plan and think and strategize. How am I going to handle this? And for how long? Because we don't know that either. So as much as anybody can possibly be informed, that is the key right there. And don't think that it's just going to go like, you know, somebody in Washington, I'm not going to name anybody's name. Oh, it's all going to just disappear. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. That is not true. That's dishonest. It is untruth. It's a big fat lie. This is look at what's happening in Italy and in Korea and China. People are locked down and staying locked down. But I did see something this morning on the news that I thought was very, uh, was it, it was a very sensitive thing. It was so beautiful. Uh, people in a neighborhood in Italy were singing to each other from their balconies across their alleys. Yeah, I saw that. It was so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That's right. It's community. They were trying. Yes, it was a community. Exactly. And they were behaving like a community. They were supporting one another as they lifted their own spirits. So that's, you know, that's what I recommend. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, and also, I guess if that isolation piece, the good thing is that it's not, it's, it's unlike a hurricane in that, 
at least we have, you know, um, for right now, of course, the, and it seems like the utility companies are lightening up and not, you know, cutting off services. So people have power, they have yeah. access to phone use, so they don't mm-hmm. have to be isolated, I, I'm assuming, um, if they can avoid it, if that leads to some kind of, you know, anxiety or some kind of d- depression. Well, let me let me not assume. Is it likely for those for folks to experience depression while having to stay home? Oh yes, that yeah, definitely that isolation, especially if they live alone. Um, and it's funny because they might be perfectly happy staying home alone. Maybe they're not usually out and about you know, depending on their age and their abilities. But when they're forced to stay at home, that's a whole nother story. That's when they begin to feel as though they've lost power, they have no control, and that makes them feel helpless. And sometimes they could get depressed, but they could also get angry. They could also get angry and decide, well, I'm not going to stay home. I'm going to go. They can't tell me what to do. That is the, the the danger as far as I'm concerned. They have to think about they're not the only one that's staying at home. They're staying at home to save their life and maybe the lives of others and that it's the right and smart thing to do right now. So you want to look around your home and see, you know, there always are some projects in your home that you've been meaning to do and just don't get around to doing. I got an email from a friend in Houston. She said, well, I guess I'll get that box of photos that I've been supposed to be organizing. And I guess this is a good time for me to do it because I'm not going out. And I wrote her back and said, yep, that's right. Yeah, and you'll I- feel a a sense of accomplishment in addition to keeping yourself busy. Right. And I, and I think it's that, that productivity that helps. Um, I myself suffer from depression, um, a really tough bout of it um, a while ago. And I remember I just like, just started sleeping all day. And um, of course I did consult um, help and I got access to help and, and there was all different types of treatment prescribed. But I think what really helped me was taking walks in my park. And once I just started literally putting one foot in front of the other, now I know that folks can't are are advised not to go out, but the point was once I started moving, I I started Mm -hmm. to feel better. And I hope folks understand that there's, you know, lots of productivity that you can do at home um, mm-hmm. if you are creative. And now with, with so much technology, even if folks have a laptop, you know, it, it usually mm-hmm. has a webcam. You can talk with folks. You can see folks. So I'm hoping I'm hoping folks even try to just connect more, even if it's just electronically with people that yeah. are fighting that. But one, yeah, I think your friend, you know, taking a little taking up some tasks around the home. That sounds like a great way to stay productive. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Well, I applaud you again for mm-hmm. uh, discussing the fact that you've uh, experienced depression because there's no reason to keep that a secret. And I'm glad that you realized that. And I'm also glad that you learned that with uh, physical exercise, that is a very, very fabulous remedy. We recommend that all the time. And if somebody can't go outside or sit on a balcony even, then they can do sit-ups, they can, uh, you know, stand still and sort of raise their legs and stretch. Uh, I've been taking Tai Chi over at um, St. Andrew's Fitness Center. That's a wonderful, gentle, easy, stretching mostly uh, form of exercise. And uh, it helps with balance. And so, uh, yes, there are many things that a person can do. You just have to kind of sit down and think about it. And like you said, there's a lot of resources on 
the internet. But if somebody is not high tech, for instance, um, doesn't have a laptop or a laptop or or doesn't know how to use it or isn't into it, there are other ways. Like if you have a television, they have PBS, they have all kinds Discovery Channel, all kinds of ways of learning new behavior, which would be beneficial to you. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get back to, you asked me about my clinical practice. Currently, I'm working with uh, a small agency by the name of Synergy Supportive Services. And it's an agency that provides uh, job coaching and you know emotional support, career development to adults on the autism spectrum. And um, I love doing uh, that work and um, we're very helpful, I think, with the clients that we have. Um, but what I'm finding here is that they're, well, it's a little expensive to be a part, you know, to, to uh, adopt this service as a way of helping your uh, child or your adult child. Yeah, you know, um, um, and I, it's so, um, I had a friend um, on Twitter. Again, this has been one of the best ways I could stay connected to folks without, you know, um, going out and, and socializing. And my friend just, uh, he tweeted, or not my friend, I hope we'll become friends, but I feel like we're friends. Um, someone I really respect, um, a former Post and Courier reporter, Paul Bowers, um, he just tweeted and shared that, you know, he sees a counselor twice um, a month. And um, so now, of course, he's not going to go out. And so mm-hmm. he in, in, investigated the, um, the, the counselor said, hey, I'm, I'm going on video um, to do just, uh, you know, telecounseling. And um, his insurance company won't cover it. And mm. um, when you mentioned, you know, services to autistic adults, because that's a huge population. I had a sister who worked with um, special needs adults and many of them were diagnosed with autism. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's just like that, that care is expensive. I'm, I'm really sad to hear how mental health, um, essential mental health services are so out of reach for so many folk. But I, I hope that your work with Synergy is somewhat accessible for some folks. Well, you know, what I was about to say is that so far our clients are all non-black. And uh I'm really I'm really unhappy about that because mm-hmm. I think the reason there are two reasons. One, um some of the families are not willing to own the fact that they have a child a, a small child or an adult child with autism or who is on the uh, spectrum. That's one problem I've run into. And the other is that it is expensive. And we're not real expensive, but, you know, for some people, maybe another two, two fifty, three hundred dollars $300 a month is outside of their means. And so, you know, we're available, but, um, you know, folks are just unable to uh, accept the services. Uh, I am going to be working with my clients the next, like, at least a month uh, on the telephone. I'm not one of those high-tech people. And also, um, many of the clients who are on the spectrum aren't that savvy, put it that way, um, when it comes to some of the new high-tech stuff, the electronic things, uh, beyond games, for instance. And so... I don't want to put any more pressure on them by even trying to figure out how to do that. So yeah. I talked to them yeah. and so far that's been, that's been working. 
And I can imagine too, there might be some other very real barriers like, um, and, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to wade into your professional waters, but I, you know, there's some types of like uh, sensitivity to sound and light and whatnot. So um, it's a challenge for a lot of folk who deal with um, all types of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. disabilities to gain access to care. But I'm, I'm happy to hear that you are trying to connect. And I think that's why I wanted to speak with you. I wanted to know what some mental health professionals are doing outside of, you know, um, you know, you're, and you're also someone who's invested in, in justice and social justice and racial justice and equity. Um, and, right. and you've already outlined so, so well the de- um the disparity in terms of how black folks can't you know can or won't gain access to um certain mental health services and and that's just what I wanted to lift up and I really really appreciate this time you you've given me um I think it's just the beginning <laughs> we need a part mm-hmm. 2 um yeah. and, and maybe our part 2 can be something specific or maybe maybe even some more of your observations as the coronavirus makes its way through this entire country, perhaps you can, um, you'll be, you know, safe enough and, and, and well enough to just continue this conversation about what you're observing from as a, both a mental health professional and as a concerned citizen. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate this opportunity. Maybe in part two, I can get a chance to talk about the book that I've recently published oh. um, or that was published. It's a, a a book that looks like it's for children, but it really is aimed at parents who have adopted or who are thinking of adopting. And it's the story of a little boy who's almost five. The title of the book is, Guess What? I Was Adopted. Mm -hmm. And he tells the story about how his parents sat him down again and talked to him about how they had adopted him. And he gets to ask questions about, well, what does adopted mean? And they explain in very basic terms. And then he runs next door and tells his neighbor, guess what? I was adopted instead of keeping it a secret or feeling as though there's something you know, negative about it. Mm -hmm. And she gives him a big hug and says, oh, yes, I know. I remember when your parents brought you home. What a wonderful family you are. And he tells his mail carrier and he gets the same kind of response. The book is beautifully illustrated by Nadine Johnson, Mm -hmm. who is also my publisher. Mm -hmm. She's the uh, owner of 123 Mango Tree Publishing Company. So she was my editor and my illustrator. And the little... uh, um, illustrations are of people of all different colors, and it's so it's it's a, a really informative book for parents and for children to bring from the closet the information that people do adopt, that people have been adopted, and that is a beautiful thing. The second book that I'm working on right now, while I'm being uh, socially distant yeah. is the story of my own adoption oh. and I'm just about all finished with it and so I'm looking to get that out into the world yeah, very absolutely. soon absolutely no your work your work matters and your work is is um something I definitely would love to hear more about I'm sorry I didn't ask about I should have known you were <laughs> an author though like <laughs> <laughs> but, well, no, but no, 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 we'll, we definitely will talk about that because I think too, that has a, that intersection in the black community is, is something mm-hmm. else. I mean, there's a lot of families, that's right. a lot of families, all kinds, that's <laughs> right. Formal and informal adoption for yeah. sure. Oh, for sure. For yes, sure. Um, mm-hmm. if people, I ain't going to get into it because <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> or we could be here for another hour talking yeah, about that. But I, I oh, indeed. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And if you can think of anything, um, you have my telephone number and, and uh, my email. If you-